Welcome to HER's Health and Social Care Teams podcast series, Pause for Thought. I'm Rebecca Leesk and lead our Health and Social Care Team and will be chairing each episode. Our aim is to gather together some thought leaders in the veterinary sector and explore key issues relevant to practice owners and their management team. So in today's episode, we're going to consider the legal essentials for veterinary startups. I'd like to welcome today's panel. I'm joined by our specialist veterinary legal team. Caroline Levis is a corporate solicitor, Stephanie Malone, an employment solicitor, Louise Crook, a real estate solicitor, and Dan DeSouls, a commercial solicitor. So welcome all. The first thing um, to consider today is, is what are we seeing in the marketplace? So over to the panel. Hello, hi, I'm Caroline, I work in the corporate team. Um, we're currently seeing more of our veterinary clients setting up their own practices as they are keen to see independent, as some do not want to be seen to be joined in a corporate setting. There are also currently less opportunities to buy into existing practices as many are being purchased by corporates. How about you, Stephanie, from a product perspective? We're seeing that former sellers who've owned practices, sold them either to um, other independent vets or to corporate buyers, are now out of their restrictive covenant periods, uh, either through the sale agreements or if they have joined uh, the, the uh, entity that they sold to, either as an employee or a consultant, they may be out of their restrictive covenant periods and that they're looking to take the experiences um, and wealth of knowledge that they have uh, gained uh, through owning a practice previously and looking to use some of the monies to invest into a new practice and, and using that as a startup opportunity. That's really, really interesting. And I think we're seeing more and more of it um, year on year. We're seeing greater interest in startups, which I think is a sign of the marketplace. So if I was um, a vet um, and there was myself or me plus uh, another colleague and we're looking to get started, I think it's going to be quite critical to understand what are the key ingredients to setting up, where do I next turn, what are the steps I need to consider. So Caroline, from a corporate perspective, what will be your top tips? Yes, well, there's a number of structures um, which you can set up your fetal practice um, within. So this is just one of you, um, the chances are you may be a sole trader or you may set up a limited company, which I'll touch on in a moment. If there's more than one of you, then you may set up a partnership or an LLP. Um, we do, however, find that the majority of our clients will set up an entity company, and this can be used whether there's one or more owners. It's always important to seek tax advice from the outset because the different structures will have different tax, tax treatments within them. Um, in respect to our company structures, the owners will normally both be directors and shareholders. We can use different classes of shares, and that's a really important thing to consider because different classes can afford different rights to those shareholders. Mainly the different rights you want to afford to those shares will be the different um, to be able to declare different dividends as against those different shares. Um, well, when set up a company, um, you may wish to also consider having a shareholders agreement put in place. Um, that agreement will just regulate the relationship between the parties and it will deal with things such as the rights attaching to those shares, how shares may be transferred, what happens if a shareholder leaves, um, who could be the directors, how a director's appointment, what happens if there's a deadlock. And what happens if someone comes along and wants to purchase the business? Can their shares be sold? Thank you, Caroline. Yeah, lots to consider there. I think if I was a vet, I'd probably find that overwhelming. Lots there, but I think the key message is speak to a solicitor. They can expertly guide you through the key things to consider there and get that advice from your accountants as well because the two pieces of advice need to come at the same time. That Those tax consideration, accounting considerations are, 
are really key. Yes, definitely. Brilliant, thank you. And, and Louise, over to you from a property perspective. Yes, yeah, so um, vets normally usually need a location from which to operate. I know uh, the pandemic has caused a lot of uh, vets to do online consultations, but more often than not, a property is required and forms one of the biggest uh, assets of the new organisation. Um, and so obviously the key thing, first of all, is to find a location um, somewhere suitable. Uh, and uh, the best thing to do in that regard is to instruct an agent to help you find a specialist location where a vet can operate from. And there'll be plenty of considerations there that an agent can help you with looking for other practices in the area, where's your nearest competition, what sort of footfall do you have, what would be the best type of premises to work from, and are you able to operate a veterinary practice from that type of premises. And then other things such as car parking would become relevant. Those, those are all things that a specialist agent can help you with, and it's always a good idea to engage one of those right from the start. Um, once you've found some premises, then you need to think about how you're going to hold those premises. Are you going to be buying a freehold interest, which takes quite a lot of capital investment up front? Um, or are you going to be taking a lease or an existing leasehold interest? And um, you'll need to uh, think long and hard about how you want to do that. And if you are going to take a freehold interest, uh, how you're going to fund that because it takes quite a lot of capital investment right up front. Um, if you then do take a freehold interest, one of the things you'll need to think about is whether that freehold is going to be bought by a, a company structure, as Caroline's touched upon, um, or whether for the future it might be better for that freehold to be held by individual partners and then leased back to the company to create a, a, a pension potentially. And again, as Rebecca and Caroline have both talked about, tax advice is crucial here. Uh, and so it's a really good idea to get a, a, good, um, a good number of professionals around you to advise you on all aspects of, of these types of thought processes. Um, if you're taking a lease, uh, you'll usually have a landlord to consider and you'll need to enter into some heads of terms with that landlord uh, for the business going forward. And uh, you'll need to negotiate the terms of that lease with that landlord. And what kind of things do we see? Typically in the vet space, we see 15 year leases. That's because banks will fund on a 15 year lease because there's a long enough term there uh, to cover off the period of the loan. Uh, but then you might also want to consider within that uh, whether you want a break clause because usually business plans are done on a five yearly basis. So um, you might want to insert breaks every five years. That'll be an element of negotiation with your landlord there. Um, you'll also, as I touched upon earlier, need to make sure that you can use the premises for veterinary use. And if it, if it currently has a different use class, you'll need to make a planning application. And so before entering into any lease, you need to ensure that you're going to get that planning permission for veterinary use. And then finally, the other thing I just mentioned is uh, looking at that property and understanding uh, how it will be used as a veterinary surgery. Do you need to make alterations, adaptations? Are you allowed to do that by the landlord? 
do you need to make a planning permission to do that what sort of alterations and adaptations are those um, and how much will that cost and how long will it take um, because if there's going to be a substantial lead time you'll need to factor that into your budgeting considerations and when you'll be able to actually start practicing from those premises so i appreciate there's a lot to digest there but i think the main message is to get a good professional team around you from the very start so that you've thought through all of these things uh, before you actually uh, start uh, start putting together your practice. Thanks Louise, and listening to that, I think the timing element's really key because mm. it could be quite a long lead time in finding that property. So I think it's one of the real key things that will drive the process yeah. and timeline to start up. Yeah, I agree. Finding the location is always really difficult. Uh, as we touched upon, you can't always use properties as a vet surgery. And if you need to make a planning application, there's a lot of time there to be built in. And then obviously the works to adapt the premises. There's a time and cost element to that as well that must be factored in. So, so um, a lot of things to think about up front. No, we're, we're giving these vets a long list. Yes. <laughs> Stephanie, if we're, we're thinking about employment considerations, where, where would you start? The, the key consideration for any veterinary practice is going to, up there, have, have staffing uh, requirements. Um, veterinary practices are providing a service, so they need staff to provide a service to customers. So it's important that when um, a vet or, or a couple of vets are looking to start up um, a practice that they're thinking strategically about what staffing resource they might need now uh, to, to get the practice up and running, but also in the future and what their plans are for future growth, some of which may be organic, but other, other uh, recruitment uh, may be something that they're able to, to to factor in uh, based on trigger events, uh, reflecting of, of how the practice is growing. When starting uh, to recruit staff, there are recruitment practices that will need to be followed uh, with regards to uh, matters such as right to work checks from staff and making sure that you're following up to date home office guidance uh, that reflects uh, requirements for checking uh, identification documents and making sure that you're doing that for all staff um, to uh, avoid any claims of discrimination. In respect of uh, the recruitment processes that uh, you'll need to follow, again uh, being aware that you'll need to make sure any recruitment processes are, are non-discriminatory, but also thinking about the types of staff that you might need and their employment status as to whether there's a need for uh, any self-employed staff and also linking back to uh, comments that other colleagues have made as to what any tax implications of that might be. Um, in, in recognition of the fact that there is uh, and has been for a number of years a shortage of staff in the veterinary sector, thinking about uh, what rates of pay you want to put into place. Are you going to carry out some research to work out what, what market rate is, uh, both in the locality, uh, but also if you're looking to recruit vets or veterinary nurses from further afield, what sort of pay rates and benefits you need to put into place in order to make your offering attractive, yet affordable, given you're in a startup point. 
when you are looking to take on staff and particularly uh, if you're looking to bring staff with you who you've perhaps worked with before in other practices uh, not only will you be needing to think about restrictive covenants that you might put into place in their own terms and conditions but also whether they're bringing with them any potential legal headaches and also your own contract uh, are you or uh, any of the potential staff going to run into any risk that you could be in breach of restrictive covenants in having them work for you or bringing clients uh, or any other colleagues with them and because that could land you uh, into uh, hot water uh, if there is uh, any issue from the practice uh, that they're leaving or indeed as I mentioned yourselves. With regard to taking on staff and what you need to do from day one, uh, there's now the requirement that the uh, terms and conditions of employment that are covered in uh, section one of the Employment Rights Act, uh, that they are dealt with and that they are um, issued uh, for the day one. Um, and as I mentioned, also thinking beyond those as to restrictive covenants, confidentiality, those sort of business protection provisions, uh, but also thinking uh, more widely as to uh, the other documentations that you will need, uh, staff handbooks, any documents that you might want to put into place that explain staff culture, because that will also likely be something that's driving you to start up on your own, that you, you've got a key uh, driver as to what you want the culture of the practice to be. Is there training you need to put into place for those new starters? But also making sure that you've got the nuts and bolts of a legally compliant practice for things like disciplinary, grievance policies, um, also thinking about auto-enrolment and pensions um, and that links nicely on to um, Dan and the commercial considerations in terms of some of that documentation such as GDPR compliant requirements. Yeah, certainly Stefan and I think um, yeah, thinking about your policies in particular with employment and indeed Caroline and, and Louise with the property and the corporate aspects. I think from a data compliance perspective the key message I think is, is not to forget about it. Um, and I think there's always a temptation, there's so much going on with the new startup that data protection is probably pushed down. Um, I think it's something that we all appreciate the need to have in place, but actually understanding how it fits with a particular business model is, is another question. Um, so there's two main aspects to data protection generally. Uh, so the, the external outlook, which is obviously your customer facing policy and procedures. Um, so what data are you holding on behalf of your customers, whether that's names, addresses, contact details, telephone numbers, um, which obviously would include things like if a practice wants to send out newsletters or updates or reminders for annual vaccinations, or even things like CCTV on site. Um, and then there's the internal um, thought process, which is your staff and your colleagues. Um, so if you're processing payroll, which inevitably you will be doing, you know, how do you keep that data secure and separate from your customer facing data, but also how do you get the compliance policies in place to reflect those two models? Um, and we, we all know that the GDPR UK, GDPR policies now known, um, is, is crucial to that. So the external facing um, privacy policy will detail things like what particular data are you holding? So as I've mentioned, customer data, the email addresses, contact details, etc. Um, but also the internal facing privacy policy which is sent out with the employment contracts to staff. Um, you know, what, 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 what do they do with customer data um, in terms of you know, confidentiality um, that they may be exposed to during the course of their employment contracts? Um, but also as a business, how do you control and keep in check that internal data and how do you update your staff on what 
data you're actually processing on their behalf. And remember, processing could simply just be storing that data. You don't actually need to be doing anything with it. Um, so your best practice will always be caught by, you should always consider uh, data protection compliances. Um, and also from a practical point of view, how do you manage um, the, the data on a day-to-day -day basis? So do you have some kind of service on site? Do you have secure systems? Um, you know, how is that data stored? Is it encrypted, for example? We, we all know in the news today, um, there's always a cyber attack happening every month. Um, you know, practices need to be aware of how do they best protect themselves so they're not exposed um, to compensation claims if that data were to be hacked and obviously circulated in the wider public. Um, one of the easiest ways of doing this is having a designated individual, data protection manager for example, um, to actually be in control of that data, um, to know the processes inside and out, but also to be a point of contact um, for your customers for example, or indeed internal staff if they have any questions on their data. For example, we all know now that customers have a general right to ask any business uh, what personal data the business holds about them. So, you know, there's nothing easier than having a designated contact that deals with those, is familiar with the process, and can respond quickly and efficiently uh, to, to any of those subject access requests. Um, and I think also having a mind on what basis are you legally holding that data in your practice. So yes, consent is always a good one, um, but also there's that legitimate medical interests, um, it's obviously the animals which come in. Um, so it's making sure that you understand the privacy policy, not just from a theory, theoretical or a legal point of view, but also how is that practically applied to your practice. Um, because of course the worst case scenario is you've got a new startup, all these things are happening, and before you know it, there's a, a knock on your door, a phone call from the ICO, which obviously no one wants as a new startup. No, thank you, Dan. So much to think about. I think all of our experts on the panel have demonstrated today. So if you're at the start of that journey, we can certainly help you. Um, we've been acting for vets in the sector for over 15 years and have got a great track record of supporting startups and our experts can help you work through the day-to-day -day considerations. We've also got a specialist team, um, HR for Vets, and Stephanie, they'd be able to help as well with the startup, wouldn't they? Absolutely, HR for Vets are exactly what they say. <laughs> say they are our HR consultancy service uh, for veterinary practices, and um, they advise all different sizes of veterinary practices, mainly up to practices that are big enough to have their own in-house uh, HR function. But uh, for a startup, may well be interested in the small business services that they offer that are for what you might call more micro businesses for up to 10 staff um, and for startups that would include uh, assistance with those contracts of employment and, and, and staff handbooks um, that I've mentioned but also uh, the general recruitment processes and as to the sort of all of the list, shopping list as it were um, of things that a practice might need to think about when recruiting staff. Brilliant. Well, a big thank you to the panel today um, for giving, I'm sure, vets lots, lots to think about. So if you are looking at setting up a practice, please do get in touch. We'd be delighted to support you. Thanks all.